Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B24, The Yona Kings His career was proof that Sparta still forged steel. But unlike the valiant stand of Leonidas at Thermopylae, Xanthippus found his inspiration in the deep pockets of the great powers. He earned his reputation in 255 BC by leading Carthaginian forces to victory over the Roman armies of Marcus Atilius Regulus. Willing to think outside the phalanx, Xanthippus had altered his army's composition and formation just before the critical battle. Xanthippus's victories in North Africa had Rome on the defensive, until he was betrayed by Carthaginian nobles jealous of his success. In response, Xanthippus went east to Alexandria to seek employment in the court of the Ptolemies. Given the history of Alexander's successors, he expected minimal downtime. In 246 BC, King Ptolemy III decided to overthrow the new Seleucid king Seleucus II and gave Xanthippus command of Egyptian forces. The Spartan general won victories in Anatolia, captured the Seleucid capital of Antioch, and even campaigned east as far as Babylon. His successes enabled the Ptolemies to force bitter concessions, including control of Antioch's seaport of Seleucia Pieria. As his reward, Xanthippus was granted a satrapy of his very own. Egypt's strength was Syria's weakness, and Seleucid governors made plays for independence. Among the first to revolt were those on the frontier, in the distant lands of Central Asia. Here, a mix of Macedonian, Greek, and Persian satraps defended the legacy of Alexander the Great two generations after his death. Among those who revolted was Diodotus, the governor of a thousand cities in the eastern province of Bactria. On its foundation, his new Bactrian kingdom was one of the world's richest and most urbanized, centered on the fertile river valleys of northern Afghanistan. 
It was also completely surrounded by hostile powers, including the Seleucids, the Scythians, and India's Mauryan Empire. And I implore you, please refer to the map I've posted on the blog and Facebook pages, because otherwise it's very likely your head may explode. The emergence of the Bactrian Kingdom, better known as the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom, inspired a neighboring territory to break free. The Seleucid province of Parthia, just south of the Caspian, declared its independence under a former satrap of Persian descent named Andragoras. A short time later, a tribe of Central Asian nomads called the Parni invaded Parthia, killed Andragoras, and claimed the territory for themselves. This early conquest gave the Parni their more conventional name and they soon became known as the Parthians. While King Diodotus I of Greco-Bactria had been an ally of King Andragoras, his son and heir Diodotus II made peace with the new Parthian king Arsaces. Working together, the two rulers were able to fend off the efforts of Seleucus II to bring them back into the fold. This successful defense was marked by the Parthians as their first moment of true independence. The aftermath was less sanguine for the Bactrian king Diodotus II, who was overthrown by his brother-in-law, a local ruler named Euthydemus. Euthydemus was a former satrap of Greek descent who ruled the nearby territories of Sogdia and Fergana. His marriage to Diodotus II's sister gave him Bactrian credibility, and, feeling Diodotus to be vulnerable, he decided to make his move. His takeover of Greco-Bactria put Euthydemus on the map as a major regional player, which was good, since he'd soon be up against an even more powerful foe. The next Seleucid king was Antiochus III, later known as both Antiochus the Victor and Antiochus the Great, which is a bit ironic, since his early career was a laundry list of betrayals and military defeats. Still, Antiochus was eventually able to recover Antioch's seaport of Seleucia Pieria and reclaim Seleucid territories in Anatolia. In 209 BC, after humbling King Xerxes of Armenia, Antiochus turned his attention to the breakaway provinces of the east. After steamrolling through Parthia and gaining the submission of the Parthian king Arsaces II, Antiochus squared off against the Greco-Bactrians at the Arius River. Exhibiting the military skills he'd learned since coming to power, Antiochus defeated Euthydemus's army of 10,000 horsemen. The Greco-Bactrian king fled east to the fortified city of Bactra, where he endured a three-year siege. In the end, Antiochus accepted Euthydemus's offer to serve as a Seleucid ally and bulwark against nomadic invasions. The deal was sealed in marriage between Antiochus's daughter and Euthydemus's son, Demetrius. Once the conflict was over, Euthydemus turned his attention to conquering the western territories of Aria and Margiana. After his death, around 200 BC, his son Demetrius took the throne. Looking for a conquest of his own, Demetrius decided to lead a Greco-Bactrian invasion of India. 
The Indian territories won by Alexander had been lost by Seleucus I back in 305 BC. Chandragupta Maurya, founder of the Mauryan Empire, had soundly defeated the Macedonians and laid claim to western India. He also seized the territory of Arachosia, located just south of Bactria across the Hindu Kush. The region was commonly known as White India due to its large Macedonian population, and reclaiming it was the first step in any plan to retake India. After years of conflict, Demetrius was successful in conquering Arachosia. From there, around 180 BC, he marched his forces east toward India proper. Whether or not he was aware of it, Demetrius's timing was impeccable. The century-old Mauryan Empire had recently collapsed, its last emperor killed, and his throne usurped by an ambitious general named Shunga. The military coup had left the critical Khyber Pass unguarded, permitting easy passage for Bactrian troops. Over the years that followed, Demetrius led his army to victory over the kingdoms of northwest India, including Gandhara and the western Punjab. He set up a capital at the ancient city of Taxila, and began construction of the new city of Sirkap just across the river. To the native Indians, the western invaders were known as Yavana or Yona, a corruption of Ionian. A contemporary Indian prophecy also added some color, calling them the Yavanas, wicked and valiant. It also predicted a coming civil war, which, given Macedonian tendencies, was a pretty safe bet. While Demetrius was forging his satellite Indo-Greek kingdom, his brother Antimachus was left in charge of Bactria. Around 170 BC, Antimachus was deposed by a general named Eucrates. Eucrates's origins are a bit of a mystery. He may have been a relative of the new Seleucid king Antiochus IV, attempting to reclaim Bactria for the empire. Either way, his ascension coincided with two major events. The elevation of the first great Parthian king, Mithridates I, and the death of King Demetrius in India. Whatever Eucrates may have hoped, the military conquests of Mithridates I permanently severed the links between the Seleucid Empire and the Macedonian kingdoms of Central Asia. At the same time, after Demetrius's death, the Indo-Greek kingdom seems to have lost its cohesion, with a number of kings ruling various territories over the next few decades. And, as predicted, the Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek kingdoms were soon at war. A few years after taking power, Eucrates of Greco-Bactria decided to reclaim the former Bactrian satellite. His main Indo-Greek opponent was Demetrius's son, Demetrius II, called the King of the Indians by the historian Justin. Years of campaigning earned Eucrates control over Indo-Greek territories as far east as the Indus, but he had difficulty cementing his gains. Eucrates eventually met his match in an Indo-Greek king named Menander. Around 155 BC, Menander succeeded King Antimachus II in ruling over the territories of Arachosia, Gandhara, and the western Punjab.
He then campaigned south into Rajasthan, along the Ganges River Valley, and successfully conquered the eastern Punjab as far as Pataliputra. It's during Menander's reign that we get some sense of the interplay between Greek and Indian cultures. The most notable example is a work called the Melinda Panha, or The Questions of King Menander. The book is basically a long-form Q&A session with a Greek intellectual, in the form of King Menander, posing deep philosophical questions to a Buddhist sage named Nagasena. While largely conjectural, the work does provide a valuable window into the Indo-Greek world. Buddhist leanings aside, Menander was clearly a formidable warrior. And when Eucrates made another play for the Indo-Greek kingdom, Menander succeeded in repulsing him. On his way back to Greco-Bactria in 145 BC, Eucrates was murdered by his son, also named Eucrates, who ran over him with a chariot for good measure. Eucrates II then found himself under attack by the Parthian king Mithridates I. An attempted alliance with the Seleucids proved ineffective, and the Parthians seized the western territories of Aria and Margiana. As if this wasn't bad enough, the major Greco-Bactrian city of Alexandria on the Oxus was sacked and burned by the Scythians. Which was actually even worse than it sounds, because the Scythians were just the leading edge of a huge nomadic invasion, set in motion by events much farther east. The central players were the Xiongnu, a confederation of Eurasian nomads who dominated the Asian steppe northwest of China. The Xiongnu challenged successive Chinese dynasties, including the Shang and Zhou, for centuries. But in 221 BC, the Qin dynasty came to power, and decided to take a serious stab at wiping them off the map. Around 215 BC, the Chinese emperor Shi Huangdi, he of the Terracotta Warriors, sent his general Meng Tian to exterminate the nomads. In the end, the best he could do was deal them a military defeat, drive them from their homeland, and erect a line of forts that would eventually become the Great Wall. Moving west, the Xiongnu started a large-scale chain reaction. First, they displaced another major tribal confederation called the Yueshi. Then the Yueshi displaced local Scythian tribes. And unfortunately, this wasn't a one-time affair. After succeeding the Qin in 206 BC, the Han dynasty kept up pressure against the Xiongnu. This, in turn, pushed the Yueshi and Scythians ever deeper into Central Asia. By 175 BC, the Scythians had taken the northern Greco-Bactrian territories of Fragana and Sogdia. And, by 155, they'd pushed on further south. All the while, the Yueshi were right on their heels. By the time the Scythians burned Alexandria on the Oxus, the Yueshi had occupied Fergana and Sogdia right behind them. On the death of Mithridates I in 138 BC, the Scythians pushed west into Parthia, while the Yueshi pushed further south into Bactria.
King Eucrates II stood by virtually helpless, as a veritable buzzsaw of rotating steppe tribes kept slicing away more and more of his kingdom. In 130 BC, his successor Heliocles I was killed in battle against the Uesci. The remaining royals and nobles were forced to leave Bactria and resettle south and east, which meant, by definition, that the Greco-Bactrian kingdom was over. The Uesci would resettle in former Greco-Bactria and make its territories the core of their new Kushan Empire. Around the same time in Indo-Greece, King Menander finally died, while campaigning against a rival in Gandhara. Large numbers of surviving coins testify to the longevity and prosperity of his reign. The words of the Melinda Panha provide a fitting epitaph. As in wisdom, so in strength of body, swiftness, and valor, there was found none equal to Menander in all India. Plutarch noted that, in respect to his remains, the cities put forth rival claims, and only with difficulty came to terms, agreeing that they should divide the ashes equally and erect monuments to him in all their cities. These monuments were very likely Buddhist stupas. After Menander's death, the Indo-Greek kingdom was ruled by his son, Strato I, with his wife Agathocleia serving as regent. But before long, the kingdom fragmented, with territories split among a handful of rulers. In 115 BC, the Parthians won victories over both the Scythians and Uesci, halting their westward expansion. But good news for Parthia was less good for Indo-Greece, as the nomads turned their attention toward eastern conquests. The next few decades saw the loss of Indo-Greek holdings, to Indian tribes in the east and the deadly combination of Uesci and Scythians in the west. By the mid-first century BC, the last Indo-Greek king, Strato II, only ruled over the eastern Punjab. Around 49 BC, even as Julius Caesar was crossing the Rubicon, Strato was deposed by a Scythian king named Ozes. Though hardly remarkable at the time, the act was significant. With the fall of Greco-Bactria in 130 BC, Seleucid Syria in 64 BC, and now Indo-Greece, the long period of Macedonian rule in Asia had finally come to an end. While the Indo-Greek kingdom was now over, the new Indo-Scythian kingdom wasn't too far behind it. Upon the death of the Scythian king Ozes, a noble named Gondafaris succeeded him to the throne. The thing was, Gondafaris was a Parthian. In fact, he was from the house of Surin, the traditional crowners of Parthian kings. Only this time, Gondafaris had decided to crown himself, as heir of Ozes and successor of his kingdom. Gondafaris already ruled Seistan, and now claimed the Scythian possessions of Arachosia, Gondara, and the Punjab. After pushing south from Gandhara to conquer the Indus River Valley, Gondafaris grafted his territories together into a new Indo-Parthian kingdom. But 
Just like clockwork, after his death around 10 BC, his kingdom also fractured. With territory split among various Indo-Parthian relatives, Indo-Scythian dynasts, and even the odd Parthian prince. During the first century AD, the Kushan Empire of the Yueshi slowly gobbled up all these petty kingdoms, reducing Indo-Parthian holdings to just portions of Seistan. A decade after the death of the Roman Emperor Trajan, the Kushan Empire's most famous and powerful ruler took the throne. Kanishka I, later known as Kanishka the Great, inherited the empire from his father, Vima Cadphyses. By the time he came to power, the Kushan Empire controlled the territories of Bactria, Sogdia, Fergana, Arachosia, Gandhara, and the Indus River Valley, and it also penetrated eastward along the Ganges. From his twin capitals of Purushapura, modern Peshawar, and Mathura in northern India, Kanishka signaled his intentions by constructing the massive fortress of Kila Mubarak, near the city of Bathinda in the Indian Punjab. He then dispatched Kushan armies across the Karakoram Mountains to conquer the Tarim Basin. What's the Tarim Basin? I'm glad you asked. The Tarim Basin was a desert region in western China that had long served as a theater of conflict between the Han Dynasty and the Xiongnu. The Kushans were successful in overcoming Chinese resistance and establishing a satellite kingdom in the oasis city of Kashgar. Over the next century, the ongoing Kushan presence would transmit Indian scripts, languages, and Buddhism into Han Dynasty China. Shortly into Kanishka's reign, the last Indo-Parthian king, Pacorus, died, and the Kushan Empire absorbed its remaining holdings. This coincided with the elevation of a new king in the neighboring Parthian Empire. Osrois I, who'd lost his throne to Trajan only to recover it soon after, finally died in 129 AD. The parts of his reign not spent fighting the Romans had been spent in conflict with his nephew, Volagasis III, who not only ruled the eastern half of the empire, but was also Roman client king of Armenia. Upon Osroes's death, his brother took power as Mithridates IV, inheriting a divided empire along with his throne. There's no record of military conflict between Kanishka and Mithridates, nor much in the way of friendly overtures. But the Kushans were cordial with more distant neighbors, including Rome. The Historia Augusta records the Emperor Hadrian receiving ambassadors from Kanishka seeking friendship. By 129 AD, Hadrian had ruled for a dozen years, years characterized more by defense than war. An emperor of withdrawals, an emperor of walls, an emperor of negotiations, and an emperor of peace. These were often hard pills for a militant Rome to swallow. When Hadrian's tendencies brought him into conflict with the Senate, the emperor divined an ideal solution. He'd take his show on the road and travel throughout the provinces of the empire, thereby avoiding too much friction with hawkish elements in the capital. But avoiding the Senate was only a side benefit. 
Hadrian's true motivation was a love of learning and culture. While his journeys began out west, in Britannia, Gaul, Hispania, Mauritania, and Africa, it was the Hellenic cultures of Greece and Anatolia that truly held his interest. He took part in the Eleusinian Mysteries, revised the Athenian Constitution, adding a new tribe bearing his name, and promoted the funding of public games and aqueducts. At Athens, he presided over the Festival of Dionysus and supported completion of the Temple of Olympian Zeus. In 128 AD, Hadrian began a second extended tour, starting with visits to Athens, Sparta, and Ephesus. But it was while traveling in Egypt that tragedy struck. His young lover Antinous, who he'd first met in Bithynia, mysteriously drowned in the Nile. Wild theories abounded, including suicide, murder, or sacrifice. But however it happened, Hadrian was devastated. The emperor soon had Antinous deified and founded the new city of Antonopolis in his honor. Statues were erected, temples built, and festivals dedicated to his memory. The cult of Antinous would eventually grow huge, especially in the Roman East. By 132 AD, Hadrian had moved on to Syria. An inscription in Palmyra gives thanks to a local noble who funded Hadrian's reception. This same noble is also recorded as constructing the Palmyrene Temple of Baal Shamin to coincide with Hadrian's visit. And yes, that's the same temple recently destroyed by Isis. Farther south, Hadrian visited Damascus, which he elevated to the status of metropolis, then Jerash, where he built a monumental arch. Unsurprisingly, both cities had played major roles in the wars of Alexander's successors. Ancient Damascus had been fiercely contested, before losing its prominence to the new Seleucid capital of Antioch on the Orontes. At the same time, Jerash had been the Seleucid border city of Antioch on the Chrysoroas, while Amman, just to the south, was the Ptolemaic border city of Philadelphia. Historian Warwick Ball chalks up Jerash's extensive classical ruins to its being a city with something to prove, flaunting its Seleucid grandeur to the rival Ptolemies just across the border. From Syria, the emperor traveled to the ruins of Jerusalem, where he erected a temple of Zeus and two statues of himself on the Temple Mount. He also renamed the city Elia Capitolina and renamed the province of Judea as Syria Palestinia. Oh, and while he was at it, Hadrian also forbade circumcision, though about 80 years too late for Azizus and Polymon. The local Jewish population reacted about how you might expect, and shortly after Hadrian left, another full-blown war broke out. The leader of this revolt was a self-proclaimed messiah and prince named Simon Bar Kokhba. The uprising met with some initial successes, culminating in the formation of a Jewish mini-state that even minted revolutionary coinage. And then, of course, came the backlash. 
In 134 AD, on Hadrian's orders, the governor of Britannia, Julius Severus, gathered six legions with auxiliaries and marched them into Judea. Severus divided his forces in an effort to isolate and starve out all pockets of resistance. Famine and disease did their customary work, and in less than two years the revolt was over. During the course of the conflict, much of Judea's population had either been killed, exiled, or sold into slavery. Those Jews who remained were forbidden from practicing their faith, and even from entering their former capital. The Bar Kokhba revolt cost Judea its standing as the center of Jewish worship, a role soon taken up by the Parthian city of Babylon. Around the same time, King Pherosmenes II of Caucasian Iberia had allowed the Alans to cross through his realm and attack Albania, Media, and Armenia. This had the dual benefits of weakening local rivals while gaining a percentage of the resulting plunder. Eventually, a combination of bribes by King Volagases of Armenia and threats by Flavius Arianus, the Roman governor of Cappadocia, convinced Pherosmenes to call off the dogs. By the way, Arianus, or Arian, was also an historian, whose anabasis is considered the definitive account of Alexander the Great's campaigns. King Pherosmenes of Iberia died later that year, to be succeeded by his son Radamistus. Meanwhile, the Emperor Hadrian spent his final years in Rome, in poor health and preoccupied by questions of succession. In the end, he adopted a former legate and proconsul named Titus Aurelius Fulvus Boionius Arius Antoninus, the future Antoninus Pius. He also had Antoninus adopt two successors of his own, the future co-emperors Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. In 138 AD, at the age of 62, the emperor Hadrian died. Shortly after his ascension, Antoninus earned his pious, either for deifying the late emperor or by sparing several senators condemned to death by Hadrian. In keeping with his new cognomen, Antoninus's reign would be among the most peaceful in Roman history. Two years later, King Mithridates IV of Parthia also died, along with his son, Sanatruc II. This cleared the path for Volagasius III to rule over all of Armenia and Parthia. With Media's prior annexation, the three great Near Eastern territories, once ruled by three brothers, came under control of a single man. In 144 AD, this situation changed. It's possible that Rome forced the issue, but there's no record of Antoninus Pius imposing his will on the Parthians. There's mention in Cassius Dio of King Pherosmenes III of Iberia, the son of Radamistus, receiving a warm welcome in Antonine Rome. Not only was he allowed to sacrifice in the Temple of Jupiter, but a statue of Pherosmenes on horseback was erected in the Temple of Bologna. Most important to our discussion, the Iberian king was also granted expanded territories. Since Volagasis III was Roman client king in Armenia, 
and since Siberia and Armenia were frequently at war, it's possible that the new territories were taken from the holdings of Volagasis. Whether Ferozmanes served as middleman or the seizure was more direct, Armenia soon passed to a new Roman client, a former senator and consul from Emesa on the Orontes. In fact, his older brother Longinus was high priest of Elagabal, while his other brother, Julius Agrippa, was a senior centurion known as a primus pilus. In 144 AD, he was elevated above them both, and Gaius Julius Sohamus was made King Sohamus I of Armenia. 